This is a Media Lab podcast. Wait, Dave, have you been recording me this whole time? Uh, no, that is not a tiny microphone or a tape cassette. Real to real. What are you? What? what why are you using all this analog technology? What's going on? Well, it's Facebook. Uh, sorry, Meta. Hmm. Yeah, I gotta get. I gotta stay off the grid. Plus, um. Kyle, you say a lot of weird things when you're by yourself oh. in your bedroom. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> name, name me four things that I say that are weird. <laughs> on a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. And my name is not Clute. And I'm the machine. I thought we were not recording for a second. I thought I had forgotten to push record. So I got this like, weird <laughs> stutter when I said that. Anyways, this is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the movie Clute. Reed Daniels? One man is missing, two girls lie dead, and somebody is on the other end of the phone. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl YYC, and it's a conspiracy podcast. Dave, this is a movie, of course, that stars Jane Fonda. Oh. And from what I understand, is a proto or an early feminist work is what a lot of people will call this film. Sure. I don't feel like two guys need to wax poetic on what they think about feminism. I just assumed you liked the idea of guys waxing. <laughs> That's on our my other podcast. Um, and so what? Here's what we're gonna do. Let's invite Jennifer Sanford to come back onto our podcast. She's back. So okay. let me grab the rotary phone here and bleep bloop somebody in here for our guest. One second. Jen, are you there? I'm here. Hello. Oh, perfect. Jen, uh, thank you so much for not dodging my phone calls uh, like <laughs> you're want to do. I'm just wondering, do you have time, perhaps? to sit down, watch the movie Clute, and then maybe talk about it for like an hour and a half? Um, like right now? Yeah, like super right now. Okay. Okay, great. I love it when I catch people that have like nothing but time <laughs> for me. This is great. Well, thank you for doing that. Jen, of course, people will know you as uh, being one of the leading Canadian conservative voices on the yes, internet and abroad. Of um, host of your own podcast called Conservative Like yes. Me, 
but also I think maybe the most important co-host of a new podcast called Somebody Date Jen and Kyle. Yes. <laughs> Which well, interesting. I happen, I happen to be the Kyle on that episode. <laughs> Absolutely. On those Absolutely. episodes. Oh, not self-serving at all. Well done, Kyle. <laughs> and that's what we call cross-pollination. That's the subtitle of your yes. podcast. <laughs> Yikes. Um, yes, I find that, uh, you know, being in the conservative space and being a political person, um, you know, what better than to also have a podcast where you talk about, uh, you know, what it takes to form what it takes to form government and what it might take to form a relationship with me. Those are the two podcast spaces that I live in. And of course, guiding all of that is the fact that I'm a crazy movie buff. And really, the reason why I have somebody date Jen and Kyle as a podcast is because I um, tried and failed to usurp Dave out of this podcast. Just Yeah, she, you almost had like a hostile takeover at one point, <laughs> really trying, trying for that role. I, I want I want the tapes of those conversations. <laughs> How can you still be making this shit with that fucking asshole? Choose me. That's quite accurate. Are you sure you haven't seen the tapes? <laughs> you haven't heard the tapes? I'm going to actually come over to your house, Dave, and actually sit right in front of you, play them for you, and I can just watch you cry Stare as you listen back eyes. to those tapes. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm going to keep pitching Somebody Date Jen and Kyle because it's one of the newest projects I'm working on. I would say go to the episode called Fetishes and listen to me be so embarrassed talking about my own personal fetishes. It's a great It, it really is listening to wow. two super embarrassed people trying to figure out why they're talking about this in a podcast space while simultaneously talking about it in a podcast space. It is the most unusual <laughs> yeah, hour very you will have. Yeah. I think the other big thing, uh, in addition to you, Jen, being a guest here, there's uh, something else we need to celebrate. This is... Our 100th episode. Yay! Yeah, so uh, congratulations to us, Dave. Looks like we made it. We left each other on the way to another love. Right, good. <laughs> it's been a blur. Yeah. Dave doesn't seem happy. Feels like... Dave, are you okay? <laughs> feels like 99, well, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you celebrate these things. Very Korean, actually. Yeah, yeah. Korean people celebrate 100, 100 days of... Uh, Babies being born. Well, here's the thing. Some people like to celebrate on the number of episodes. Some people like to celebrate on like the actual date anniversary. So like our two year anniversary is January 15th or something like that. I'd have to look sure. it up somewhere in January. But this is our 100th episode that we have released into the main feed, which is exciting. Congratulations us, I suppose. I think where we actually need to start, though, wait, in wait, regards to talking wait. about... You're yes, missing yes. the next plug. Sorry, Dave, to do this to you, but really cross-pollination no. marketing is important to both. Just <laughs> this is now the longest relationship Kyle has ever been in. If you'd like to hear more <laughs> about Kyle's inability to have long-term relationships, check out our it's other true. podcast, Somebody Date Jen and Kyle, <laughs> streaming now wherever you get your podcasts. There. Uh, well, that, yes. That's something to be excited yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. The, under, have to try the, that hard. the underlying theme is that I am unlovable and that is why I cannot... Uh, Ever, ever find a partner. Oh, the worst. Anyways, wow. so on to... Wow. What a fucking downer. Let's talk about call girls. <laughs> I think what we need to start before we jump into going and watching the movie here is, first and foremost, this is both a star-driven film, in my opinion, star-driven film, uh, as well as, weirdly enough, being uh, directed by a guy who is very well regarded by his peers 
and nobody in the wider public knows who this person is. <laughs> so let's open up to Jane Fonda first. And I would love, Jen, your history with Jane Fonda. Well, I think it's important to remember that if you're watching this film in 2021 or beyond, you are not watching the Grace and Frankie Jane Fonda make a movie about being a call girl. Like it's really important to scope this right. film in the right time and place. So Jane Fonda, despite trying to rewrite history at this time in the 70s, was a a very vocal and probably the the chief voice um, in the in the Hollywood movement for being against the Vietnam War. And her activism was not limited to simply, um, you know, rallies in Washington, D.C. Or, or, or doing films um, in, in Hollywood. She has this reputation of being called, you know, Hanoi Jane, where she went to uh, Korea and was, you know, very famously filmed on an uh, anti, what was it, anti-machine gun apparatus, anti-aircraft anti apparatus. Yeah. And she was... Yeah, was she Vietnam. was really yeah. seen. Did I say Korea? Well, sorry about yeah. that. You did. I put. I planted the. I've cross pollinated <laughs> the seed <laughs> of doubt. Yeah, that's right. Sorry about that. No, she she very famously went to Vietnam and and was 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 very vocal to to say like you know what's happening. Our the 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 U.S. involvement in in a war with Vietnam is 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 unacceptable. And she was really undeterred from that message. And and a lot of people, you know, especially seeing the images coming out of Vietnam. Um, very much felt like she was a traitor to servicemen and and those people who were who were fighting in Vietnam and and so she was she was making these films and chiefly among them this film at a time when you know there was there was really polarizing views on Jane Fonda as a as a person she had she had always been a proud feminist but this was really like the next level of activism to say like the next level of political activism and for a lot of people it really rubbed them the wrong way. And so you have to really look at all of the focus and all of the attention that was on Jane Fonda as a person, Jane Fonda as a woman, and then Jane Fonda as an actress as this film was being made. Yeah, I have to say, like, I really don't have a good sense of Jane Fonda as an actress. I'm going to even say like pre-1990s. Like, I, I don't have an extensive knowledge of her filmography. Like, I remember her coming in as like a special guest star for the for the newsroom if you've ever watched that tv show and then of course gracie and frankie i know her from from this stuff um she did some of those like uh christmas movies in her late career and stuff like that too yeah but so many people so many people from the that were born sort of in the in the late 70s early 80s um like i'm a product of the 80s jane fonda came into my purview with nine to five Right with Lily Tomlin right. and yeah, and, and Dolly Parton, and we really almost saw her in a comedic lens. Right, she had such a friendly disposition. She was gorgeous. She still is gorgeous in her eighties. Um, but I think we have to remember that at the time that this film was being made, there was an incredible um, sort of heat on her as a as an anti Vietnam War activist. Me and Jane have the same haircut. And again, I, I like how you phrase it, like through her messaging and how she's kind of rewritten her own story. Um, and maybe it's not as calculated as that, but uh, I've been watching a bunch of videos, reading all this stuff here this week 
uh, both on the Criterion channel, which is available and on YouTube. The way that she tells in a way, she's coming right off of a movie called Barbarella, which I've never seen. I've only seen the pictures, right? So like a floofy little science fiction film, which people parody, but I don't really know anything about that film other than the parodies. Um, and this is her movement into like, I'm going to be much more of a serious actress. But she also says like she was just starting with feminism at this point. Like, she didn't really have a good handle of what that even meant. Was going to walk off this movie. Really started to become much more politically aware, politically active. And I guess whether you agree with her or not, all that is swirling around here at the same time. But Dave, how about you? Any personal history with, with Jane Fonda? I don't know. I grew up in the 80s, so aerobics and headbands. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't discover 9 to 5 until probably, that's a name everybody kind of grows up, such a big movie in the 80s, but I didn't watch it until yeah. I was probably in my late teens or early 20s. It was just never something. Uh, to be honest, I just think of Dolly Parton when I hear that name. I didn't even know Jane Fonda was in it. So, um, How I can tell you weren't gay, Dave. I didn't uh, watch uh, any of the Frankie and whatever you call it on Netflix, but I'm aware that she's in it with uh, that other lady. Lily Tomlin. So, great. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so, it was really, I, I've never watched Clute. This is another movie where the name transcends it. So, like people have heard this term Clute, yeah. I think, if you're any kind of movie liking person, but I've never watched it. Yeah. So, uh, I have no idea what to expect. The, the, oh, this, again, because I'm a big fucking nerd, um, I bought, I think when I was 13, 14 years old, this book about like the history of the Academy Awards and had like every year and who won in each category and the depiction of the ceremony, like description of the ceremony. This is how I like I committed most of this stuff to memory. <laughs> so I know it's like, oh, yeah, like Jane Fonda won for Clute. And like it was like this big deal. And um, I've seen the poster and like I know like I know all the stuff around it, but I don't know anything about this movie really beyond that so excited to check it out um i guess the the follow-up question here and we'll get much more into probably jane fonda as we discuss this movie alan j pakula first off does that name ring any bells for anybody on this podcast no well on the presumption i haven't looked him up then <laughs> right no. <Yeah>. i mean <laughs> again people will know him for things like all the president's men sophie's choice and then this string of 90s, like, what I call, like, Harrison Ford movies, although he's not in all of them, but, like, Presumed Innocent, Consenting Adults, The Pelican Brief, The Devil's Own, all those movies that are, like, basically John Grisham novel titles, and some of them, I think, are based on John Grisham novels. At least in the beginning of his career, like, he had a very strong, um, I don't know, uh, prestige picture, like, that he would go after and direct, and then kind of went into legal thrillers for the last half of his career. But anything besides that, any other, any of those titles pop out at you as being like, oh, yeah. I like that. Or I don't he like was, that. He Well, he produced To Killing Mockingbird. Yeah, he was a producer before he became a director. Yes. Which is fascinating. And uh, did you hear how he died? No. Oh, uh, I thought it was like pancreatic cancer or something like that. No. But... Uh, <laughs> he was driving and a car in front of him ran over a seven foot long pipe. It flipped up, <gasps> smashed through the windshield into his head Ugh. and he died in a car accident of that what? nature oh that's awful like just that's some fucked up way to die yeah Ugh. so he's got his face smashed in by a seven foot steel pipe on a freeway or that's something like nuts. that. 
Shouldn't laugh. No, but that's it's crazy. A, that's a great, uh, great upper here for the podcast, Dave. Thank you so much. You got to start off strong. You got to <laughs> give them strong bits so that people keep listening. It's all about that SEO, baby. Uh, how about you, Jen? Are you a Pakula head at all? Are you just well, like <laughs> ravenous about well, Pakula? Well, as a as a political person, obviously, I loved all the presidents' men. I think it is one of the best mm-hmm. political uh, films that has that's ever been made. And there was, and I found that there were similarities between this film and and that film in terms of how they built tension and broke tension and and yeah. had some peculiar sound editing to guide the way. Sure. Um, I mean, this is sometimes considered, like unofficially, his paranoia trilogy, which starts with Clute, followed up by the Parallax View. Is that the right name? Yeah. Parallax View. Yeah. And then uh, finally, All the President's Men. By the way, this is how the weird thing about how like everything seems to be connected in 1971. Do you remember talking about the parallax view, Dave? Uh, talks about Warren Beatty. No. no. Well, I think it did come up there too. No. So the parallax view, the book is what inspired Michael Crichton to write the Andromeda strain. Oh, interesting. So he makes the Andromeda strain. And a few years later they make, because that's such a success. They make the parallax view, which was the basis of him wanting to write that book in the first place. So anyways, that's, <laughs> Something we've talked about already in the in this podcast. Well, let's do this here then. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about and jump into. So, Jen, why don't you just you're just going to wait right here? Um, I mean, you are basically being projected here from Earth anyway. So, wait right here. We've left out some snacks that you can Ooh. you can peruse. Uh, Dave and I are going to go and thank some sponsors, and then when we all kind of come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about Clute. Okay. How does a projection watch a projection of a film, Kyle? I think. And how do I eat the snacks? Yeah, that's that's your problem. Um, Okay, so (laughs) going to talk to sponsors. (laughs) Fiction is not that deep or rich anymore, is it? Dave, I do have to tell you that you you do look stunning with that open back strapless shirt gown. I don't know what it is that you would call what you're wearing right now. I'm uh, I'm not sure how to respond to that except to uh, zip this thing up. You know, it's make me feel very conscious. If you have it flaunted is what I like to say. I mean, I think where we have to start, other than your open strapless gown slash shirt you're wearing, is that uh, Kyle Neighbors the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Oh, Dave, we have some uh, ad copy to read here, I suppose. It's um, what we're here do for. Like, do you like shopping local or saving money more? Mm. Which one of those do you want? Um, if it were my choice, I would shop locally in order to save money, Kyle. Another dirty centrist comment. Um, okay, well, here's the thing. In Alberta, in this very province, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. And if you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski. And we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Sorry, what, like how what I was emphasize it? Park I was going to say, what was it again? It's Park Power. Also, uh, define quickly for me the difference between a non-profit and a not-for-profit. Oh, not-for-profits burn their money. <laughs> Anytime you give them money, they immediately burn it. <laughs> All right, let me, uh, let's switch gears. I don't know if we're going to keep any of that in there because we might get fired. And we'll talk about <laughs> pod power. 
pod power. I just talked about park power. Ah, but let me talk to you about pod power. Oh, I see. Pod power. With pod power, our sponsors are making it possible for us, I think you and I, Kyle, to amplify, mm. ooh, to amplify, to amplify, to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a pod power shout out to It's Always Edmonton Community Foundation. They're doing a lot of good work up there mm-hmm. in the northern part of our province. Is this for real, Kyle? Is what? it? Like this podcast, this deep and rich fiction that we've created around this podcast. Oh, wait, sorry. Is this for real? It's a podcast. Oh, oh I and see. And it's about the various facets of black life in Edmonton. In the first season of the show, Breaking the Blue Wall, host Omar Salifu explore, oh, that's weird grammar, explores, explores anti-black racism in policing and tells stories about policing in schools, accountability in Alberta's policing system, and the impacts of police violence on black Edmontonians. Sorry, I just, that was a lot of times to say police. Do you, do you think it's going to be much like Donald Sutherland in this movie in that the police are completely ineffective? <laughs> the problem is I think they're too affective. Ah, ah, mm. right? Mm. With an A. You can listen to this podcast and read more about each episode at isthisforreal.ca. That is isthisforreal.ca. You can also support the work of these podcasters in future seasons on Patreon. You know who else you can support, Kyle? Us. Us? Yeah, we do have a Patreon nice. page. Sorry, that was off do it. message. Do it up. All right. Go well, and support. Yeah, go give- You know how much fuel we're burning getting back to Earth? This is going to be the worst bill when we get back. I thought it was solar. Aren't we on solar? Uh, solar-ish in mm. that we, we convert uh, oil into gasoline and then put that- <laughs> And you need the sun. We don't, yeah, we don't use combustion. Percolated. We use the sun, but we still burn fossil fuels. Uh, we no, are Albertan. Right. And if there's Come one on. thing Albertans do, it's Is burn. hate dinosaurs. <laughs> Dinosaur blood. Okay, well, we have all sat here and, and watched Clute. Um, I think we need to start here. And I, I don't want to like overstep. Can we all agree on something? That the fact that this is called Clute is weird? I think yeah, it's named the wrong of thing. Of course There's it no is. There's no reason they should be called Clute. Of course it yeah. is. <laughs> for, for years until this, watching this movie, like, wait, Jane Fonda isn't Clute? <laughs> like, she's, she's on the poster. She's number one build. It's called Clute. I was like, I just never thought that it wasn't her, that that was not her name in this movie. Anyways, just a weird, weird that thing. That is totally it's wild. Weird. I mean. Should be called Brie. That's what Roger Ebert said in yeah. his review. It's like, this movie should be called Brie. There's no reason this should be called Clute. It's not weird at all. Mm-hmm. It's the main thing that stands out is that as weird as Donald Sutherland is, he is not the star of this no. movie. No, like not at all. Oh, his okay. character nor his acting. So I, um, I'm not sure you how mean, that came and, and I have to say this to, and we're going to get into you, Jen, just talking a little bit more about your, your thoughts on this, but uh, I really do like Donald Sutherland. But this does feel like he woke up after like a five day bender. Was like, I guess I'm acting here today. Yeah. Like, it's like he's yeah. so sleepy throughout his entire role here. He does nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's got a cool voice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, That's anyways, one thing. Before we step on too many toys, Jen, why don't you start and just say, and don't worry about spoilers, like get into it. What were your immediate thoughts on watching Clute? Because this is your first time, right? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, okay. Just on the Do- Donald Sutherland thing, because I think that that warrants being unpacked a little bit more. I tried feverishly to find out how much he was paid for this film, because I think it yeah. would work out to be like something like 72000 per word. 
Like there are whole there like one of my one of the most one of the most important parts of the film is where Jane Fonda goes to as Brie Daniels goes to therapy and she has this and she does what we have seen in so many relationships before, which is an entire a woman having an entire dialogue about a relationship, creating the problem, solving the problem, identifying the problem, speaking for herself, speaking for him. She does this whole scene in therapy where she scopes the entire relationship. And then at one hour and 22 minutes, it flashes immediately from that therapy scene to them in bed. And she turns and rolls over to him and says, you're not going to get hung up on me, are you? He doesn't move a muscle. He doesn't say a line. And the scene just ends. And you're like, can somebody please let Donald Sutherland out of this paper bag of acting? Like, what is happening here? (laughs) And then the film on top of that is called Clute. It's so frustrating, those two things that you expect. And I think that I do. I do wonder if there had been a more dynamically written role there, which surprises me because this film was written by two men, if there wouldn't have been a more dynamically written male character there, there would have, I think, been a greater balance because I think that there were moments where Jane Fonda's character had to carry the storyline too much. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's actually even more fascinating than that. Like, it's usually the inverse of this where we're complaining, like, you know, these two older guys are writing this underbaked woman role. And in this way, it's the exact opposite. Like, this is a beautiful role for Jane Fonda to sink her teeth into and kind of a nothing role for the lead guy to, to do. In fact, to the degree with um, I think it gets bogged down every single time, like the investigation continues on. It's like, I don't care. Like, I don't need you to like be marking in a notebook and like crossing names off just go show me that you and like talking to someone and then move on to driving the action forward but the lack of strength on his part creates challenges in the plot line like this is where you see when there isn't a strongly written companion mm-hmm. to the lead you have then these these moments in the plot line i i, I wrote it in my notes that one of the, my my greatest beef about a film, any film, Kyle Kyle and I are almost friends. So we talk about this socially. Is is characters nobody's Kyle's characters <laughs> doing uncharacteristic things for the sake of the plot? Right. There were moments where right. we see Brie Daniels as very self assured, and then all of a sudden she's you know she's she's weak and she's scared, and you realize that's a plot device to get them in bed together. Right. So you right. know those kind of things frustrate you, and and and. I, I just feel like had we had a stronger role from Donald, Donald Sutherland, we would have been able to answer those easy questions, which is why does she care about this investigation? Why does she want to be part of this piece? And what does she see in this guy? Because it's so forced, these connections, these meet cute points. Didn't you, didn't you get the feeling that she doesn't see anything in him, that he's a tool? That basically it's intentional how she keeps flipping between... I mean, for example, they have a pointed depiction of her with a quote-unquote John, where in the middle of her ecstasy, she looks at her watch. Mm -hmm. There's something about this that implies how performative her character is supposed to be. And whether or not she wants to be involved in this, I mean, they do string along the idea that uh, she must know in the back of her mind, presumably, that the guy that um, Clute, (laughs) (laughs) Clute is after is not the person who beat the shit out of her. And is likely not the person they're hunting. But her, for me, her whole journey is more a reflection of just the complexity of a person who lives in this situation. Like apparently in the backstory, she went and interviewed and sat down with actual sex workers, et cetera, in New York. 
And uh, even at the end, I didn't take it uh, as a romantic ending where they're going to go and settle down in the Hamptons or something. I found her character fascinating because uh, I felt like she was stringing him along the whole time while trying to figure out who she is uh, for two hours. And honestly, she deserved an Oscar. She played every end of the spectrum of whatever Brie, whatever her name is, supposed to be experiencing. And so whenever she was afraid, insecure, she goes back to drugs, she's hooking, she's investigating. The only thing she didn't do is like punch a guy in the face. And uh, mm-hmm. that's because Donald Sutherland was in it. It would have been great if she punched that guy out the window as we saw in Play Misty for me. Can I just say that I deserve an Oscar for pretending to be interested in what you say? Isn't this the third film now that someone has been punched out of a window, basically, <laughs> that we've watched in 1971? It's kind well, of this weird. guy jumped, but I do yeah, feel right. like if Clint was in this movie, <laughs> it would just have a cold cocked him. Yeah. I, I do have to say, and I, I want to be very upfront with this, as much as I have like those major criticisms towards some of the structure and Donald Sutherland, I ended up like really loving this movie a whole lot, specifically because of Jane Fonda's performance. I think they're they're using that performance idea throughout the entire movie where we see her even starting, like she's trying to audition for things at the very beginning, even mentioned to her therapist, like, I can't seem to book anything. Which is wild when we see later when she is talking to the Johns, like, you're a great actress, but that's only when you have all the power. When you don't have power in a situation, you aren't able to actually be forthright and be able to, like, show everything about yourself. So I found that interplay, like, super fascinating. And um, I I love what Jen said, though. It's like, there are those moments where it's like, oh, this doesn't feel like it's it's real for her but i think that that is also performance like it's it's like she's she knows uh when to play timid or demure um when she actually has the power how she's even like stringing on like the roy scheider character and and that's where i think i i'm and this might be a little fan fiction i made up in my head i don't know but i figured like she is seeing like okay i myself cannot get into here and like overthrow who really makes the uh, calls the shots and like really owns me. But I bet this guy can, I can push him into the directions of where I need him to go. Like a, uh, like a blunt instrument to take down that power structure so I can actually finally escape. But it also plays around with trauma and, and the performative nature that happens when people are deeply affected by childhood trauma specifically. And in this case, when she was, she, she mentions it, how she was beat up very brutally uh, by someone in her past and, and how that just messes with you. And, and, and it's hard to create very long lasting, long lasting connections with people because that's always in the back of your mind. Like you're not able to give yourself not fully, not emotionally. You can give your body away, but you can't emotionally give your yourself away. And anyways, I've, I found all that so super fascinating. And, and especially that very lasting when she is listening back to to the record and you're just watching her cry and snot and, and everything. And I thought that was so smart that they focused on the reaction. It's like, we do not need to see the other guy in that scene. We only need to see what she is reacting to. But important to remember that that was not the cue. That was not the cue. Right. No, it's true. The, the director wanted a different, a different response. He wanted a stoic response. He wanted to see, you know, anger from her. And she felt that the, well, I, I think she couldn't control it. I think she made a choice as an, as an actress to, yeah. To, to cry. And that ultimately became the clip. I want to ask this question because, you know, what both of you are talking about is how this is really her, her journey of self-actualization, right? Her finding her, her, her voice and her, and her strength and her, and asserting her mm-hmm. power. Do we think that that is shortchanged at all 
by the fact that there's this, and I really do think it was it was phenomenal art direction and cinematography when we have the close up of her uh, listening to the tape, and then we have this moment of silence, and then we have the lunge from him. I thought that was that was right. I thought that was great filmmaking, but ultimately the rescue comes from Clute, the Donald Sutherland character. Yes. And that I feel so cheapens the narrative journey that was intended for yes. her. And this is, this is the problem with the title is that there is still the, the rescue male savior problem. And I think that uh, it's why I joked it would have been great for her to have just punched that dude in the face <laughs> or in a wrestling match, he falls out or something. I don't know why Donald Sutherland's even there. It's uh, it's maddening towards the end that this guy who's so detached. I mean, I, I don't even know why he's investigating. It's implied that he knows the guy, but why does he know the guy that's murdered? He's not a wealthy industrialist. Like, why I don't understand. There were no, so I, I, many questions about what his motivation yeah. was and why he was there and what his relationship with her. I mean, the why two is he of so them- obsessed with finding this guy's killer? It's super weird. He He's the worst written character in the whole fucking movie. And oh, totally. Yeah, I, like, this is... This is not a. This is not a. I, I don't want to make this sound like it's a defense, but from what I gather is that he is just circumstance, right? We start off by him being at that funeral party, whatever that is. It's like his friend's husband has gone missing. They don't know why he's gone missing, so he's going to look for him, which uncovers oh, he's this friends plot. with the guy's wife. Yes. But still, yes. still, put your. I didn't even but get still, that. It's, it's 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 a w- weird way to bring him into Stretch. the story. Yeah, Stretch. I agree with but that. But still, but there's yeah. there's that's just not the only question. Like, what is his what is his attraction to this case? Why would he mm-hmm. you know want to want to serve this piece of justice? Um, why is he even attracted to her? What is his like? There's just so many unanswered questions because he's such an underdeveloped character. Maybe there's an assumption that this is supposed to be like those film noir films where this stoic detective but they don't do the backstory they don't set him up at all maybe there's a presumption that we will assume that this guy's kind of like a humphrey he's supposed to show up in a fucking hat and trench coat and just take over and he doesn't and uh it's weak that part's very weak uh you could have made this whole movie without him no i I agree with that difference ultimately i can just tell by the way that uh this conversation is going i am going to be rating this film so much higher than probably uh either of you um that's a little presumptuous yeah. maybe maybe it's presumptuous yeah. but i'm just saying there's like i was so taken with Bree's journey with jane fonda's performance and the way that they dealt with the trauma inside of this movie as someone who has dealt with something similar in their past i thought that was like expertly captured and expertly performed within this so i don't know i was swept away by that while also acknowledging like all this other stuff that's going on, it's like, it's great in spite of all this stuff that I don't like. It feels like it needs to be like, well, we are like this procedural of some sort. So we have to show the procedural of how they're uncovering all this stuff. I'm like, I don't care about any of it. I really don't care about any of this stuff over here. I just want you to keep coming back to her and seeing her journey through this. But what I will also say, Jen, have you seen the original Get Carter with Michael Caine? Yes. We've talked about that here this year. And that was the thing that I brought up with that movie, which is like, I didn't really connect really well with that movie because I just felt like it was trying to have its cake and eat it too at the same point. It's like, it's talking about the pornography industry while still like succumbing to the pornography of what he's chasing after. And in this one, I disagreed on that. I know, I know. But it's like, I was not a big fan of that movie. And I realized while watching this movie, because I had a very hard time even vocalizing, like, I don't know what it is, but there's just something that bugs me about this movie, Get Carter. 
And after watching this movie, I figured it out just because I figured they're focusing on the wrong person that I, I don't really care about Carter's journey through that movie. I care about his niece's journey through that movie, which we never get to see. And this is the movie that's basically showing that we're seeing the, the effects of the people that were being hurt and that journey through it. And that's why I found this much more engaging than I found get Carter. Just uh, don't like yeah. Michael Caine. Just don't No, That's not, that's not true. That's not true. Um, I don't know. I, I think there, I, I think it's a good comparison to talk about two different points of view. I uh, like the uh, schism between the male and the female yeah. expectation of a murder procedural, whatever you want to call it, dark grip, blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't think Get Carter lacked that kind of uh, depth. It just, it didn't have Jane Fonda in it. If Jane Fonda had, you know, was Carter, I think it would have been more exciting because she's such a great actress in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought Get Carter, not to spend too much time on a movie that we already talked about, but I felt like it had an intent to make you feel uncomfortable. Um, and I think this movie does the same thing. You know, we have to, actually, this is just a theme with 1971 and, and this era is like, they just want to rub as much dirt in your face so that you have to face these things you're ignoring about general society. And like, here's a movie about, you know, murder, serial, uh, serial killers, sociopaths, uh, pornography, child molestation, fucking like the whole gamut this year has been very challenging themes that people are scared to make movies about anymore. And um, this is another one where they don't shy away from the experience of being all levels of prostitution. It's not a movie about a high-end call girl. We see everything from the top to the bottom, people living in penthouses to like crack addicts right. and, and or heroin addicts, I guess. And the whole thing isn't justifying anybody's experience over another, which I think is the main reason why Jen Fonda is so good in this, because she also isn't trying to play it like saintly or whatever the right word is. She's not- Yeah, like that hooker hooker with a heart of gold. She had a choice there mm-hmm. to really try to as- assume this with uh, like a sympathetic eye, and she opted not to do that, which I do think speaks to the research that she did for the role, right? And the self-doubt that she brought that she could play that role. Yes. I think that that, that, that helped her there. And I think that that does speak to the strength of of jane fonda for sure yeah there's one interview i watched with her this week where she said like the the thing that you'll notice a lot about people that are in that profession for a long time is that the vast vast majority of them is to talk with them and there's like nothing behind their eyes there's this there's no feeling there anymore because you can't if you want to succeed you've had that look in your eyes for years the audio of of this the the mixing and stuff i want you to talk about that a bit more Well, I want to say that I thought the score was really, it had tremendous restraint. I think that you, it really could have been something that was so carried by like a love story soundtrack, especially if you would have realized in post that Donald Sutherland is in a coma <laughs> through the entire film. We need something I think a more. lot of people, <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people try to cover that with like a, a, like, okay, well, let's just use music to try to, to try to usher the story along. And they, I think they exercised a lot of restraint. I really appreciated how the score was used, like how music was used um, to to sort of guide the storyline, but not force our own, like not to force the emotion of of the of the film's sort of undercurrent. So I think that that I was really surprised that they wouldn't have been have been acknowledged with with a greater Academy Award um, base for the, for that for, for that sound space. Now, the sound editing, which is different than the sound mixing, we know, the sound editing was absolutely insane. Like that one scene where they're having sex and you hear the, the, 
bed and the mattress creaking, mm. but you can see and he, like you, their faces are moaning, but you don't <laughs> hear that. And you're like, this is insane. And then the guy goes through the glass at the, and then the glass like shatters kind of before he goes through that kind of stuff drives me crazy because I think when you have, when you have, especially when you have actors who are trying to bring a real movement to the film and then you have this like really poor technical mistakes. Yeah. It's like technical mistakes. It's like, what was that Tom Hanks film where the, where the, where the, the director of photography, I think was also comatose and things were blurry and, and misfocused. And you were thinking like, this is a choice. This is not a choice. This is a skill mm-hmm. piece. This is a skill deficit. And I think when it comes to the sound mixing, that's how I feel about that. I feel like that happened in the, uh, what's your Sergio Leone movie did we watch this year? Ducky uh, Sucker. Ducky Sucker. I feel like there were parts in Ducky Sucker that are like that, where all of a sudden an entire scene will... Uh, be misfocused or they'll have these hard cuts because I'm pretty sure whoever was shooting it fucked up the film or the exposure and they had to just piece it together. Uh, To your point, Jen, there were also little points where they would just hard cut certain parts of the music or like dialogue and it just just takes you out of it. And it's so frustrating because Mm. this thing is so carefully crafted and whoever piece together the audio um it might have been donald sutherland i don't know maybe he was in the in the booth and he just kept falling asleep he moonlit but, as a, like uh, a sound mixer on the weekends actually it's very i hate hating on him i actually think he's a very interesting uh, weird dude but but that's uh, the point right is that we know what he's capable of we've seen him stand and deliver in film after film after film so i think that's why we're so hard on him is because we know what he's what he's capable of both from a perform from a performance nature and from a cognitive actor's performance and none of that is here. And so that's, that's why we pick on him. But yeah, we'll take the sound, the sound mixing and the sound editing with him. Yeah, I, I would just say too, I mean, if you, if you have a script where the male lead has six words, you need an actor that's going to be able to emote whatever the scene is with his face. And, mm-hmm. uh, and Donald Sutherland did not do that. Let's do this. Well, well, we have a bunch of other things, I think, that we can uh, discuss, but let's do some quick backstory here, which is Clute was released on June 25th, 1971. Uh, it is currently rated 7.2 on IMDb. It has an 81 on Metacritic and on Rotten Tomatoes from 43 critics. It has a 93 percent and 5000 plus users have given it an 80 percent. Uh, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it off of YouTube. And it's also available to stream on the Criterion channel, at least for this month. I don't know if it's going up. Well, at the it end says of this Criterion month ed- edition, so oh, I maybe see. it'll stay there for at least another month. Its budget was two. $2.5 million, and it would go on to make $12.7 million at the box office, which adjusted for inflation is about $86 million today. So, modest hit. Its plot description is a small town detective searching for a missing man has only one lead, a connection with a New York prostitute. The synopsis. He's not really a detective. Yeah, no, no. he's not. He's a he's private like a investigator. Yeah. yeah, he's like a highway patrolman, according to the uniform he's wearing at the dinner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's rent-a-cop, yeah. Uh, it stars Jane Fonda as Bree Daniel, Donald Sutherland as John Clute, Roy Scheider as Frank Ligurin and Charles Coffey as Peter Cable. Uh, anything else you want to say about any of these actors, Dave? Other than Roy Scheider is like the most dependable supporting actor in the <laughs> history in of film. Movie. Like it's I great. love him. Every time totally. he shows up, I love Roy Scheider. I just want to call him Blue totally. Thunder. Um, 
Jane Fonda is just fascinating. You know, not just her method thing of going and meeting sex workers. She was later quoted as talking about how sexual abuse and sort of the female experience was um, so problematic for not just actresses but women to just acknowledge all the trauma they suffer just for being women. And her mother apparently committed suicide when she was twelve. Yeah, and uh, and we should she also later say like her her dad is a famous his Henry Fonda like his yeah. like Lee Henry Fonda and. and- and brother and sister as well, right? right? Yeah. Peter Fonda and Bridget right. Fonda. And so she was uh, quoted in an interview saying that, um, to her knowledge, her mother had been uh, sexually abused and couldn't, as a child, and couldn't deal with that trauma, and hence, you know, the mental deterioration and suicide. Mm-hmm. She says that she also was, uh, what is it, like raped, beat up, like you know, thrown out. It's there's something about her entire life that is very pointed, and we saw this with some actresses, uh, and actors over the last two seasons. When they come from uh, harder lives, they tend to have more depth mm-hmm. in their ability to convey things, or they break down. And and uh, she's no different. I was joking with Kyle. She's like Billy Jack. It's there's a famous photo of her. She was arrested by the Nixon administration for no reason, and she does the the fist Black and the mugshot. Yeah. Apparently, that was a big meme at the time. And yeah, her and Donna Sutherland were on the CIA watch, watch list yeah, for I, all I can, of their anti. Well, anti-capitalist yeah. activities. This did create a kind of a big rift between her and her father too, because he was very like conservative inside of Hollywood as well. And it's like I don't think you should be going this hard. I will say this is always my pitch because they had like their disagreements, but come together to do the movie on Golden Pond, which is always a movie I recommend people watch because it's not as stuffy and boring as what people think it is. It's not like your your standard oscar winner uh from the 80s i love on golden pond so i think it it's so much funnier than people think it is never heard of it what except when i wrote this about and found out he won what? an oscar for it yeah. Catherine hepburn won her fourth oscar for it dave eh. <laughs> eh. Uh. okay not qualified yeah. <laughs> not qualified get out of um, here i'll be holding interviews for a new co-host next week what else um she yeah she's a. Uh, pretty big proponent for lgbtq for she's done everything she's act she's done activist stuff mm-hmm. for everybody and uh she's still alive and that's great mm-hmm. um actually who well roy scheider isn't alive is charles still alive i'm gonna say I no think, i think yeah. he passed no he's still alive yeah so the three of them yeah. are still he's here. more of a tv actor and uh yeah a lot of these people had very very thin thin backgrounds um Donald Sutherland, of course, is Kiefer's dad. That's all I got for him. And uh, and he he's apologizes Canadian. for that every day. So He's Canadian, which is cool. Went to the same college that I allegedly went to at U of T. So that's kind of neat. I mean, you, you know, went there like... for five minutes. I think we can stop saying you're an alumni of that <laughs> school. Apparently, they gave me a degree. I, I don't remember. I was not sober. Um, can I ask a question about Jane Fonda winning Best Actress Oscar for this film? And and I'll just harken back to Kyle identifying that he's a, a nerd for having a book on the Academy Awards. Yeah, I think I have like six behind me um, <laughs> currently. But um, I I just I've just been wondering if this was really the ushering in of not just not just the you know the intersection of the Academy Awards becoming more political. And that being why it was such a big moment for Jane Fonda to win this Academy Award. But do you also think it was the ushering in of women winning Best Actor, Actress Oscars in spite of the films they were in? Like their ability to push out of a difficult script or a, or a difficult film 
Um, I was just thinking about this because, you know, Olivia Coleman won for the favorite, the favorite yeah. two, the two years ago. And it was sort of universally accepted that that was a terrible film. What? But she sort of, she sort of came up and out from, from the film and therefore had earned herself an Academy Award. And I do feel like there, while while this film has legs, I will acknowledge. If you look at the entire pool of films in this in 1971, this film does have more going for it than it doesn't. But it still has, you know, deficits in its filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And was this a recognition of Jane Fonda's ability to circumvent that? And and I think if we're looking for maybe a specific example, I think we can look to the point in the film where you know she has a little bit of a breakdown in the car with Donald Sutherland. Of course, he doesn't utter a word. He's just driving the car. He's clued. She gets out. Yes, she gets out, goes into the train. She goes into the, it's that, it's that really iconic scene where she takes her nipples to the bar and they're there and she's clearly having a, a, a meltdown of sorts. And you just think this is, this is, pay attention to what's happening here because this is her rising up and above, I think, the way that this film was intended to be. And is hmm. that what earned her the Oscar? I don't. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I 100 agree with that. Um, I definitely think this is for your first point about like movies and the Oscars becoming more like politically minded. Yes, I think this is the solidification of that because the one book that I have that I always reference on this show is Pictures at a Revolution, and they talk about the 1967 Academy Award race about how that was old Hollywood and new Hollywood, like really butting heads. So you have things like um, Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate, but also like Dr. Doolittle being nominated for Best Picture. And they're like, what is happening? Like, these are two very different looks at what what the future of Hollywood is supposed to be. I'm going to go so far as to say as far as like that thing that happens where, and it's actresses usually of being awarded like a Best Actress Award for a movie that's not all that great, I think is just a thing that the Oscars do. Because I'm just mm. I'm just looking at I just pulled this up because I couldn't think of it off the top of my head. Just looking at the like at the 60s, like you have Elizabeth Taylor winning for Butterfield 8, which is like no one talks about that movie. Julie Christie wins for a movie called Darling. And then the two years before this, Maggie Smith wins for the prime of Miss Jean Brody. Like these are movies that nobody, nobody talks about anymore. But even in more recent years, I always think about that. Like what's the, the biggest one I remember is like Meryl Streep winning for like the Iron Lady, which is like, okay, Sandra Bullock winning for the, the blind side. Like these are not like amazingly great films that they're winning for. It's like, we have to find these examples of women who have done a great job, despite the movie that they actually happen to be in so i don't know i'd like to do much more detailed research on that before i come down on one side of it yeah it's hard i think it's hard for an industry to focus a theme on a single point you know there's going to be some type of definition change what it what like what does it even mean to be the best actor or actress mm-hmm. right is it about connecting with the audience. I mean, there are so many successful films that are never nominated for any award. Um, there are great performances in all of filmdom um, that never connect with a critic. And there are movies like Blue Valentine's a piece of shit and every critic loves it because they want to be depressed. Like Ryan Gosling's fucking awful in it. And, but these are movies that people respect for some pretentious reason or another. So I think that's a this is a sliding rule because I, I don't know. I mean, she's great in this and I don't think it's 
because she rose above the material necessarily. I think she just rises above it because she's so good. I I I don't know. Um, this movie is not a bad. It's not poorly written and it's not poorly set up. Uh, there are elements that are poorly executed. Pakula did a great job with this thing. It's pieced together reasonably well, and it really gives you that uh, paranoia and suspense. Particularly the first time someone's on the roof. You know, all these little these little moments, like the way he uses um, these claustrophobic shots when they're in her apartment, or you know, um, I think it's it's well made. <laughs> here's, um, here's but- I, again, this is not, this is a terrible this is a terrible metric you, to use probably, but I, I was just curious, and I have not cross references with with the men, so who knows? But if we're going to go for like a woman who wins in the lead actress category, and that movie also wins best picture, right? So we just can assume like okay, at least like the best picture of the year also had the best actress in it. We have the last time actually was the last Oscars, which was uh, Frances McDormand winning for Nomadland. But before that, the last time that it happened was in 2004 when Hillary Swank won for Million Dollar Baby. <laughs> That's the last time before. That's been yeah, a long like it, time. It rarely, it, it occurs few and far between, which is why I had asked the yeah, point. Yeah. Because it, it, it occurs far more readily for, for men yeah, than it does for yeah, women. You're right there. Yeah. Does that speak more ill for the women or for the men? Well, talking about men... This was written by Andy Lewis and David E. Lewis, directed by Alan J. Pakula. This is the weird thing because normally in this, like even for like trash, awful films, like usually I can find a bunch of things and there's nothing, nothing about writers. this movie that no. I can find to talk about. I found it's an so obituary. Weird. Yeah. But here's the thing for the Andy Lewis and David E. Lewis. I actually don't know if they're related. Like Their, their last they're names brothers. are still the same. Are they for sure brothers? They- I think I read. They are for sure brothers. Yeah, I okay. think I read an obituary and because talked about their relationship. Yeah. They, okay, fine. Because it was just like they're born ten years apart on opposite sides of the United States. I'm like, are these people related? <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, if we start off with for both of them, actually, Clue would be the second last thing that they wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, before this, they were both doing TV shows. Uh, however. Who is Andy has way more credits though. He has a couple of TV movies and a theatrically released film called Underground, but mostly he is a TV guy starting in the 50s, working on such things as Dr. Kildare, Outlaws, The Nurses, The FBI, and The Virginian. But this is also how I discovered that there was apparently a television show in the 1950s that ran for two seasons called Hudson's Bay. About the, about the fur trapping history of the Hudson's Bay Company, which is a company, for those of you who may not know, a company that still exists in Canada. It's still a thing that exists. Today. Anyway, he wrote five episodes of One that One person show. works there. Yeah. <laughs> One person always works there. And they're very annoyed when they want to pay for something. Yeah. They have the three color thing, which was so on vogue. He passed away in 2018. David E. Lewis had much less prolific career. Uh, like I said, his second last credit was also Clute, but he worked on a few of those same shows, specifically Outlaws and The Virginian, and he passed away in 1981. That's basically all I know about him. Apparently their dad was a famous philosopher. Oh, good. Good to know. Yeah, that's what I got from the obituary. And even the obituary is pretty thin on details after that. So. Well, the thing about it is that, so Andy would have been 46, David would have been 56 when they wrote this movie, but I don't know like if they were just interested in this material, if it was like a news story that they found that they wanted to adapt, if it was like a producer that came to them and said, I want you both to write this. I really don't know how it came to be that they were the ones picked to write this movie. 
I think, what did I read? I guess the implication of the write-up of uh, Andy's death was that, uh, I guess maybe because, I mean, this is why they mentioned his father was this intellectual. Apparently, they had a known interest in psychology, in particular, like with trauma. Mm -hmm. And this was something of a spec script. I can't remember exactly the detail of how it came across Alan uh, Pakula's desk. Um, but that's the only reason why this thing gets made. I think uh, it's just one of those star-crossed things where it's this first draft, essentially. And right. this man, Pakula, sees it and says, this is... We got a winner. We got a winner here. It's one of those and things too, like just what happened. I, I don't know about 1971 specifically, but even in if we're talking about current day 2021, let's say that you, Dave, have that spec script. Like it's just basically like an outline, and I oh, come we're working on it. Yeah, and I come yeah. in and like uh, fix it up a bit. You you still get credit for that idea, no matter what I do to the script. So it could also be one of those situations, or Pakuli didn't want to take credit on the script himself even though he made different things also a lot of this was improv like that scene where you only see like the back of her and it kind of slowly zooms out and she's talking that's completely made up uh in, in that scene so i feel like this script is maybe just more of like a it's here if we need it but it's not something we're following super close to the there has detail. to be some strong foundational writing for this yeah. movie to be as complex as it is sure. i mean not to take anything away from jane fonda but you don't improv uh, right? Like a psychological thriller. It's just not uh, possible. I don't know, Dave. I mean, I think I could do it. <laughs> well, we do it every episode. We talked about, uh, we talked about Pakula, who was just starting his directing career. He was this long time, uh, long time producer. There is this clip you can find of him talking to, um, oh my God, my favorite guy. Oh my God. Talk show host. Oh, Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. He's on the Dick Cavett show. Uh, we've been hanging out too long. Why would that name immediately come to my head? Yeah, I don't want whoa, that. That's, I don't want that cup. That's I love, thing. I love Dick Cavett <laughs> more than anyone should. Um, but <laughs> So he, uh, he tells a story on that show about how he was the person who went to see Harper Lee and convinced her to sign over the rights for To Kill a Mockingbird. Knocks on her Whatever door, introduces himself, has some biscuits, and then convinces her to sign over the rights. So... You don't turn down Harper Lee's biscuits. The other thing about that, so this is his second movie. His first one was this 1969 film called The Sterile Cuckoo, which starred Liza Minnelli in one of her first like adult roles, meaning she wasn't a kid in one of her dad's movies. So, uh, And she's nominated for an Oscar for that, doesn't win that year. Jane Fonda, in her own words, was this budding feminist who she tried to get out of her contract. She wants Faye Dunaway, actually, to come in and take over for her. But Pakula convinces her to stay. Um, and then she would spend that week following around the call girls of New York City to see what that lifestyle was like. From this, there's two Oscar nominations that come out. So the first is for Best Actress for Jane Fonda. The second is for Best uh, Screenplay for the two Lewises. Jane Fonda does win hers. It's a. Uh, did you watch that video clip I sent to you, Dave? No, of course not. That would that would presume that I actually read your texts. <laughs> yeah. And I... So it's it's presented by your favorite actor of all time, Walter Matthau. Gross. Um, <laughs> and he makes a joke, and it's because George C. Scott won the year before, and he did not come back. He wasn't even there at the previous ceremony. He was not going to come and give it to the best actress this year, which was their tradition. Anyway, she comes up, and her speech is maybe 20 seconds long. It's super short. It's like, I think you said There's... it already, Jen. It's like, thank you to those who clapped. There's lots to say, but I'm not going to say them now. Thank you. And she walks off yes. stage. Like, yeah. It's very short. A message that was crafted by her father, Henry. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because there was there was some discussion about whether she was going to use this as a platform to talk about 
the U.S. and and their involvement in Vietnam and and make this a make this a an opportunity to have a political stage on national television. Brando, and there was a yeah, yeah, really, and and there's press exactly. Brando represents an important precedent of of how that happened before. Well, when yeah, that would have happened. Sent up an indigenous. Yeah, I was gonna say that would have happened a year after, right? That would the was it a year yes, after or a year before? Sort of Godfather comes out seventy two. This comes out seventy one. So he sends up um, an indigenous woman. She comes up and you and yeah, we need better indigenous rights and gets booed off the stage. Yeah, that and there and refuses the the trophy. Yeah. Right. Doesn't accept it and use the platform, refuses the trophy and uses the platform. So there was really a thought around w- would she use this platform to be political? Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think that there really was a sense that she was going to. It's one of those things we see now where it's really not really a surprise by the time you get to the Oscars. She'd won the Golden Globe. She'd won, yeah. you know, a lot of awards leading up to this. The momentum was certainly hers. And of course, the Academy Awards are so known for honoring a moment. Um, and and so she had gone to her father to say Oh, how do you think that this situation should be handled? And he and he really coached her to say that there is a lot to say, um, but you know, respect the sanctity of the Academy Awards and understand that your performance include was not about it was not a Vietnam film, right. it was not an anti-war film, it was not even a really a protest film. Your work in that regard was separate um, and and honor it as a, as a separate piece. And, and and I think it also had a connection to the fact that she she's talked in interviews about how she really didn't know what types of films would be coming her way after this film. This film, of course, represents such a departure for her. And also, you know, she she carries notoriety. It's I think there was a lot of people that thought people aren't going to come to the theater and watch you play like a like a princess who learns to read or whatever. Right. What, all they're going to think of you as a as a traitor to American veterans. And servicemen. No, it's true. Yeah. And and I think so. I think that her moment in that was to say, you know, I there's lots to say, but we don't say it. It's important also to realize that when she went back to the press gallery after the film, because you know how they answer questions from the press, and she said, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if I like what this film says about women. Interesting. Like she was, she was critical of the of her own film, and I think it does also represent a departure in her career around making films with greater intentionality. Yeah, it's because I know like her second Oscar comes later in the seventies. It's Coming Home, which is a, it is about Vietnam and, and and a veteran coming home. And I I don't know what that speech looks like. I've never watched her speech for that one, so I, I don't know if that one's much more politically minded in that case. I will say this. I, I'm not the one who will say, like, never, never bring up politics in your Oscar acceptance speech. Like, if it makes sense because of the movie you made. Absolutely. I'm totally on board with that. I will say that it feels like in recent years, specifically the best actor and actress winner, they feel like compelled that they need to bring something in um, and look no further than the awards where uh, like Joaquin Phoenix won for the Joker and Renee Zellweger won for Judy. And it's like for both. I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Like it's you're trying to be like super inspirational, stuff, but you're actually saying nothing of value. Anyways, that's a rant for another Isn't day. The greater question then, why do you still watch it? Oh, Dave, there's so many good moments. I will never, I will never give up the moment from this last year's Oscars where they were convinced that they were leading up to Chadwick Boseman winning best actor. I'm like, you better be very certain that he wins because this is going to go real sideways if he doesn't. And then he doesn't win and it goes boom to the roots, cut to black. They just cut the feet as soon as, as soon as those people got off stage. And I will never give that moment up <laughs> of being like, well, Oh, well it's, it's, I love those moments. As someone who, as someone who was like the biggest Rocky fan there ever was, 
and who loved Rocky and really felt like it was such a seminal role for Sylvester Stallone. And it represents the full efficacy of a character to go from a leading character to a supporting actor. And he was nominated for the Oscar for mm-hmm. Creed. Yeah. And we thought this is going to be a way to make it right, you know, to do, to do so many incredible things to recognize, you know, the genesis of this role did not win. Yeah. yeah. Did not win. But, but this also speaks to this idea of like, what does it mean to be a best actor? You know, is it a lifetime achievement award? Well, this I mean, is, I love this, Chad I mean, and Bozeman. Here's but the thing, D- Dave. I mean, this this can go. So, I can talk about this for Michael literally Kane. hours. Let's talk about Michael Caine and the Cider House Rules, right? I loved that film. Don't you talk shit about Cider House Rules, which was the best film that was made that Jesus year. Jesus Christ! That film was not that for you. That is the same year. Fight? No, I can't. Okay. Matrix came out that year. Fight Club came out that year. So here's the thing. With, yeah, Cider with, House Rules was not for you, Dave. Yeah, it was not yeah, for you. It was you. for nobody. <laughs> it was, it was okay. for compost heap. For, for the Oscars, this is the thing when you are a fanatic like I am about it, is that the Oscars are the epitome of awarding somebody an award, realizing, shit, we totally screwed this other person over that probably should have won it this year. Then giving that person the Oscar like two, three, four years later thus screwing somebody else over and they're constantly doing this weird back and, and forth And therefore thing. the cycle of life continues. Doesn't happen all the, the time. cycle of life continues. Yeah, because you have like the Peter O'Toole thing who never won a competitive Oscar in his life. And Meryl Streep who's won 7,200. It's a yearly event. Yeah. I'm actually, uh, here's my like bold prediction. I actually think that Frances McDormand is going to eclipse Meryl Streep. She's won three awards so she's tied Meryl with like a Wait, third Meryl of Streep the amount of nominations. Meryl Streep only has three Oscars? Frances McDormand has three. For Fargo, no, uh, three Meryl billboards. Streep only has three Oscars. She only has three out of twenty-five nominations, or something oh, like I that. Didn't know that. She's the most nominated, but has lost a lot. Listen, I love the Academy Awards, but I'm still not emotionally over Jim Carrey not being awarded Best Actor for The Truman Show, not even being Should have been nominated. nominated for it for sure. Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And so but here's the thing: yeah. the, 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 to actually awards. answer your question, Dave, is like I respect the Oscars because, at the biggest minimum, unlike the golden globes where it's like yeah, hate the golden globes. 15 people in their basement who vote for those awards the the it's true look at that there's like no one who votes for it's those fine. awards it's fine yeah. the, the the oscars are there's thousands of people who are voting on those who are part of the academy so it's like if you've won one before if you they invite people every year they've tried to be very like um open and like diversify their their roster here over the last few years but they still i mean it's, it's still their taste right it's an industry town it's an industry award so it's not going to be like middle america voting like well i liked i don't know the expendables so i'm going to give it to whomever was in that movie they're still looking oh, at it's something very political yes yeah, so there's a well, whole it's... thing behind it so does it matter no do i love it yes <laughs> your life seems very sad we watch competition shows on tv and uh, we're currently watching the voice mm-hmm. and the voice is funny because uh, I think the majority of the people who end up winning are country singers, mm-hmm. right? Because they can and actually it, sing. No, because uh, think no, think of where the voting exactly. public is. Because none of them should be on the show because none of them can sing. But more uh, less less being an asshole because the voting public is skewed because only the people in that whatever mm-hmm. demographic are watching this fucking thing on television and people who listen to R and B soul music they couldn't give a fuck what anybody's doing on The Voice. They have different interests. I think. Mean, all award shows are beset by this problem of bias, right? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, but I mean, but voting is is bias, like absolutely, could, right? Anyways. Yeah, let's. I mean, Jen's here. Let's get into it. I mean, we let's could. let's but talk let's about voting. We're actually gonna get back to Clute. So, <laughs> um, 
I wrote some notes down here, and if everyone else has anything else that they wrote down, I, I would love to see it uh, brought up. The, the, the biggest thing, and it's going to sound really weird because next week's episode is going to sound like we recorded it before this week's episode. I know it's I really know, weird. It just doesn't let us. So it might you know, be live live openly. Everything's got to be under this veneer, right? Yeah. So it might be weird that we're referencing something that might not have even happened yet. But one thing I was actually really fascinated by is that this is absolutely a movie about prostitution call girls. And there is actually many scenes that I would consider erotic and erotically filmed. But I never felt that it was overly sexualized either. There's this thing that goes around Twitter like every five to six days, it seems, because I follow a ton of like movie related people. You know, someone posts like, I don't think sex change should ever be made into a movie. I am so anti that. <laughs> it's like, no, like, I understand if it's gratuitous or if it doesn't add to the plot. Sure. But I think that movies nowadays would actually benefit with more eroticism being put into it and less sexualization. Um, and I think this movie is what I mean when I say that where, yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't know, uh, for lack of a word, it, it, it's okay for, 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 for a movie to be like horny in many places, the way that uh, her lips are traced or the way that her back is framed. That's cool. Jen, you're probably gonna be a better person to talk about this, but that's what I found. I felt like this was what? not, well, <laughs> well, I'm just saying this like, why am I, what, why, why am I better <laughs> right? to talk yeah, about let's this? Let's talk about bias. Let's talk, let's about, talk bias. about bias. I, this is, this is my big thing. And I, this, this, this is my, my. Uh, soapbox I get up onto all the time, which is like when we talk about, say, like the Marvel films and stuff like that, which is like Kyle just wants everyone to be topless. He I, needed, no, he needed more Thor nipple or something. I, yeah, Kyle is not okay. I have, I have fun with those <laughs> movies, but also I don't believe any of those superheroes have sex. Like it's just like it, it, it's such a right. sexless filmmaking inside of those movies. But it has to uh, be when right? it's hot people in these. Like why is it all of our movies filled with hot people, but like none of them are actually wanting to get with each other and there's this this balancing what does act, hot I think mean that, to you kyle well I mean, that's another thing oh my but i'm just saying oh my god stop yeah. stop <laughs> this is why we have a podcast called somebody date jen and kyle somebody's got to date kyle because clearly he needs an outlet yeah. for something yeah um his own, okay so his that's own the first work's thing. not not working uh -huh. enough you gotta work a little harder oh my yeah. god oh my i would like to be excused from this narrative <laughs> okay i do think that there this warrants a discussion because it is a film about prostitution but i think that so often there's a desire or a, a knee-jerk reaction an automatic response to to look for films that have a sexual veneer to be sexual films right yeah. i think but i think we have to exercise restraint here and i think there's and i think restraint is exercised here i mean i do i do come at it from the sound editing point of view that there was that scene where she's having sex with Donald. You don't hear it. You don't hear the sounds coming out of their mouth. And I think that that really took away from even us as a as a viewer thinking, okay, these two have a have a connection and it's a sexual connection and there's pleasure there, right? I have a hard time making like a like a cinema cinema cinema. What's the word? Cinema cinematography. Yeah, um, you know, justification for that for that kind of sound work. But um, you know, I I I do think that. Part of it is about holding the dignity of the character of Jane Fonda, right? Holding the dignity of her character. I think if we, does she become then too fast and loose as a character? If we see her as the sexual being on the one hand, and then as a struggling being for, for self-agency on the other hand, does it become too much of a stretch for her on, on either side? Plus, you know, there is this thought, and I, this was a big thought around the 70s was, 
is a character with attitude, is a character with a point of view as sexy as a character naked. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that is does can we create lust and illusion and and all of those things that we aspire for for female characters? And we also have to appreciate that she bills herself as a feminist. And so stripping down nude you know, the, you know, feminism was still in that third wave of defining what it was and, and being a subjective, like a, 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 an object for men would have been so counter to her, her own political ideology. Well, there's part of that too. But, but again, I'm not, ta- I, I just want to be very clear. I'm not talking about, I want more nudity in films because that's not my, what my point is. One of the most hot slash erotic scenes I've ever seen was in a movie called The Heartbreak Kid from 1972, which has Sybil Sybil Shepard and Charles Grodin. And they have this scene where she says, I don't want you to touch me. So they just get as close as they can without actually ever touching each other. And it's, it's, it's a really passionate scene. There's no nudity. There's no, no, they don't even touch each other, but the electricism inside that scene is so off the charts. And that is what I don't see. No, I think you're talking about two different. Well, I I think Jen brought up a great point, which is, yeah, the male gaze is objectification. So the reason why the movie we haven't spoken about yet is so dirty is because all the teenage girls that are in the movie we haven't spoken about yet are just literally mannequins, right? right? And they're passed across the screen for young men to uh, touch themselves to. Exactly. And that's what this film is doing. There's no nudity. And partly that might be James Bond's. I know. But for example, when you talk about why can't the Marvel films do that, right? That's a different argument than why can't we have on-screen chemistry and a different argument of what you find emotionally erotic, if you want to say, or emotionally stimulating versus physically stimulating. These these are the weird gray areas between uh, film and porn, right? Sure. Uh, When we see Ursula Andress in... uh, Ducky sucker, and she's wearing almost no clothing. Is that film or is that porn? Those are weird lines, you know. Why can't we have an erect male penis in a film, but we can show women full frontal nudity or, or being completely, you know, soaked in sweat and thrown around a bedroom? But the moment a guy, like we got guys' butts, but the moment there's anything going on in the front, it's like X-rating. These are weird questions. These are sociological problems, and I think that what you're asking are, you're kind of conflating two different things you know i think sometimes you want the physical object thing and have more sexy people and sometimes what you want is what you're describing with heartbreak kid which is just that magnetism Mm -hmm. and that's writing i mean the at the bottom of it it's really you just need a writer you need a you need a good plot you need a story that you connect to and that can in itself be erotic well it's writing framing there's a whole lot of filmmaking things that go into making that work but yes. isn't that what the difference with Cluedus versus, uh, what's that piece of shit we already talked about? All pretty maids in a Pretty maids basket. all in a row, which we haven't talked about um, yet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Garbage. It's because you can get drawn into stuff like this emotionally mm-hmm. rather than just... But maybe the, maybe the question we can be asking, just to, just to bring it back to Kyle's point about the Marvel universe, which I don't even know how we got on this tangent, it's was Kyle. It's every are, in, in getting to know these characters, right? In building a connection with these characters... Are we seeing these characters fully in the state of this film? Clute, I think we can say that we've seen Brie Daniels do all of the things that she would mm-hmm. do to have us fully understand her psyche. To the point of the Marvel films, there's no way that characters that are that celestial and that powerful and that hungry for you know a, a life well lived and justice Validation. and fairness don't also get it down, right? So would those films be better with sex? Yes, they would. 
I think it's the idea of getting to know these characters, identifying with these characters, giving these characters gravitas and putting them on a pedestal. Um, do we fully see everything that they would be engaged in doing? I think we're deprived in, in films in the Marvel universe here in Clute, which is a weird comparison to make. But in this film here, I think we do get to see everything that that the Brie Daniels is and thinks and behaves and acts. We get the full we get the full spectrum of it uh, without the glorification of sex. The other half of it is is how much would we have gotten to know Donald Sutherland's paper bag character mm-hmm. had we seen him in a more sexually explicit manner? I'm so turned on right now. Well, um, I, I mean, the the one thing about that one encounter where she, you know, they have sex for the first time. I, I just love her dig at the very end when she leaves because she says, "Don't be sad. You lost your virtue. Everybody does." Yeah. And I thought that was such like, here's a knife right to the heart for you. Because I, at at the moment, it's like, oh, is he going to like succumb to this? You want him to like, he's here to actually solve this murder or solve this this crime. So is he also going to like um, muddy the waters by also beginning a sexual relationship with this person who he's supposed to be helping? And uh, he does. Yeah, the old uh, stoic virtue of what mm-hmm. a real man is supposed to be is challenged. It's just not challenged well enough because mm-hmm. uh, we don't understand any of it. But that's one of the reasons that scene in particular, why I, um, yeah, I love the intentionality. I, we don't have to have sort of this rigid explanation of what the, the Brie character's motivation is to just corrupt this dude. But uh, I love that she's above it. You know, she comes in, she plays this part. He like collapsing, you know, oh, I'll, I'll just sleep on the floor on this pull out on this couch, whatever. He's trying to be all nice you know, about it. Yeah. Bigger about it. And then uh, the whole mm-hmm. time she knows he's, he's thirsting. And then she's like, all right, see ya. And you're like, oh fuck, this guy's an idiot. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> at, at the same time, I mean, this yeah, is like, power. this is something that Jen and I talk about a lot on, on our podcast together, which is like self-destructive tendencies. And she is like the epitome of self-destructive tendencies, right? As soon as things get good. She being Jane Fonda, not me. I'm sorry. Yes, that's <laughs> hey, correct. Yes. Sorry. Just a point of well, clarification. Well, I mean, we, we well, could say. Well, I think. Uh, call, a, call him B here, I think, situation. But uh, can, can, I, can I make the uh, the generalization that everybody has self-destructive tendencies? I mean, oh, it's part of yeah, being a human do. being. What a dumb centrist thing to say, Dave. Oh, what my are you God. talking no, about? <laughs> Yeah. No, I I don't know. Anyways, keep going with your point. I mean, what what no, did you want to... I, I, just the point, like, I think that is part of why... You said, like, I don't know what her, like, thought process is for, like, a, like corrupting him or going after him. I think it's just that. It's like, I want to prove to myself that I... That he isn't as good as I want him to be, and therefore I don't have sure. to... You know, whatever. But there's that other thing that when she's speaking to the therapist, one of my favorite scenes, which speaks exactly to this, because she says, he seemed me horrible, seemed me ugly, seemed me mean, seemed me hoary, and it doesn't seem to matter. He seems to accept me, and I guess having sex with somebody and having those feelings is new to me, and I wish I didn't keep wanting to destroy it. So she's speaking very plainly about like what her thought process is there. Yes, again, I keep going back to it. I agree with Jen. I wish Donald Sutherland was giving something other than her having to just say it plainly like that. But I think it's yeah. such a it's a uh, such a true moment of her because the only time she's actually being real is when she's in that room with the therapist. At least that's my interpretation. That's mine too. That's the that's what I like about the writing so much is I, again whether it's these two brothers or yeah. whether there was a ghostwriter or whether they had a an actual female consultant on this to be like whoa whoa you guys don't know what the fuck you're talking about here's some more natural dialogue either way what i like about what she's discussing i think this is the point you're getting to is it has nothing to do with being a woman at all does it Mm -hmm. 
It's just uh, getting a window through the uh, therapy sessions with some uh, psychological exposition, which I, right. I love. I also live that. And I did a lot of these uh, self-destructive things, even with uh, Helen and trying to break up with her because I told her I wasn't supposed to be happy and all this kind of weird shit. You know, yeah, we want to talk about trauma and traumatizing brains and like everybody's different psychology. So we'll skip all of that technical No, I things. need the Freudian reading and then the Jungian reading well, of this. And You would know that Freud is no longer in uh, on Vogue. Vogue no, yeah. I, well, that's, I, that's the best part about this is uh, we're left to guess at who Brie is and we're not given a straight answer and she's able to carry that. So uh, I know this whole episode is now becoming sort of uh, Jane Fonda fan fandom, but uh, she's incredible in this. <laughs> There's an, a moment where she's on the screen where I want to turn it off. It's like, I just need to see where she goes with it next. And uh, it's you know, exciting. You can, you can criticize her for being like Hollywood royalty or nepotism that she got in acting career in the first place. But I feel like this proves the the reason she had a career in the first place. The last thing I just wanted to point out with her in it is when she comes home and she's alone for the first time, she starts singing to herself. It's like, mm. I have also been there and have done that by myself, like just kind of like lonely and be like, I need, I've just been, had this super intimate moment with somebody and now I am so completely alone by myself in my house. Wow. Should we just end it there and then lead into <laughs> your right agenda there. and just like, Cut right into your, I'll just leave now and you guys can start your episode <laughs> <laughs> and figure out uh, what's happening with your relationship. Unpack that. This is the thing. I always, I always sympathize with the lonely people in film and Dave's like, meh, losers. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> no, that's absolutely not true. I, I don't like uh, loneliness portrayed uh, as self-pity. Right. That's the problem. Humanity is the problem. Full stop. Uh, you know what I hated on top of the uh, sound editing? Why did they do those weird freeze frames at the end? Yeah, I agree. So stupid. Oh, yeah. Right? I just, those little, and this is why at the end of the day, this can't be, you know, a perfect movie. So Donald Sutherland's a problem. Yeah. But there's these little, little trips. It's I like agree. when we talked about Mr. Uh, Mr. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It's yeah. like, it's almost fully baked, but the, he's still working out. This is the second little, movie too. So maybe some of that might be. Him trying and to then as you guys brought up, by the time he does all the President's Men, it's like, Perfect, figured it right? out. Yeah. Taught. The, the only thing I wanted to bring up, and this is such a me thing, and no one else will care about this, but I love the fact that Gene Stapleton is in this movie for two minutes, who's Edith Bunker from All in the Family. <laughs> She's a secretary who's basically portraying Edith Bunker inside of this movie. <laughs> totally. Uh, totally. And you'll catch, a, you'll catch a glimpse of Sylvester Stallone as an extra. Was he really in this He's one in too? This too? What? Because he, he was in bananas yeah. last week. So. Yeah, he was in bananas. <laughs> yeah, Wait, when yeah. Was he? So I still as an extra. Where, what? What's? Well, then you weren't paying attention. Oh. Go back and watch it and report back to us. on Criterion. I could watch it again. We're done here. The machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here. So first and foremost, let's get into critics' choice. So this is where we go back to oh, contemporary critics of the time and what they thought about this movie. You got to so, read Pauline Kael's uh, hero worship. Yeah. Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert are the two people that I have pulled out. Um, I will say Roger Ebert was much more positive. Pauline Kael was kind of medium on us, but like us, loved Jane Fonda. Roger Ebert said, Intelligence. I suppose that's the word. Include you don't have two attractive acting vacuums reciting speeches at each other. With Fonda and Sutherland, you have actors who understand and sympathize with their characters, and you have a vehicle worthy of that sort of intelligence. So the so the fact that the thriller stuff doesn't always work isn't so important. So he was kind of on the side of like the other stuff besides the thriller elements of it. 
is the stuff that comes in this movie for. Pauline Kael says, it's no work of art, but Jane Fonda's motor runs a little fast. As an actress, she has a special kind of smartness that takes the form of speed. She's always a little ahead of everybody. And this quicker beat, this quicker responsiveness makes her more exciting to watch. She has somehow got to a plane of acting at which even the closest close-up never reveals a false thought. And seen on the movie streets a block away, she's Brie, not Jane Fonda, walking toward us. High praise. So this brings us to our, the question we ask each and every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? So, Jen, what would you say to those two questions? I think it does hold its cultural relevance. I think it is refined storytelling and Jane Fonda has emotes a lot and I think sets a, a big expectation of, of films still trying to be delivered by um, actors and actresses today. I like the, the plot structure. I don't like the rescue at right. the end. I think that's the thing that doesn't hold up. I, I have a real thought that if this film was made today, that it would have been her pushing him through the window, but then not being prosecuted because it was self-defense. Right. Right. right? And it, and it would have ended with a far more pragmatic point of view. Still a freeze frame actually at the end is like they're laughing and then the credits roll. Be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's, you know, if, with a couple of exceptions of it. Yeah, I do. I do think it holds up. And I do think that it's a it's a it's a film that still has relevance today. Um, actually, you know, the other film, Dave, that I was thinking of while watching this, which is, again, a much worse version of this is eight millimeter that we watched mm. last year. Right. Which is, again, kind of the good looking at this person who disappeared. They even have the same scene of them, like flicking through all the. Uh, people who have died and stuff like that Um, except in the 8mm one literally focuses on that for like two and a half minutes as he flicks through they had nothing else to shoot nothing else to do Um, but Dave how would you answer those questions yeah I I think it's uh, both I really enjoyed uh, being introduced to this thing and uh, to agree and parrot Jen you know the movie itself has a lot of uh, problems a strong word but like little hiccups you know, how much can we expect from a movie made in 1971 to recognize the white male savior? I don't know. I mean, it's annoying to watch a little bit, but I think people should watch this movie. And if you mm. want to watch the tour de force uh, acting, um, this is this is as good as it gets, man. This is, uh, Jay Fonda really, yeah, knocks this thing out of the park. So um, I, I'll, I'll tell people to watch it. I'm a no, yes in the S. I'm a yes in the S too. I mean, for sure, you can tell this was filmed in the 1970s, but as far as the acting, the acting that Jane Fonda gives and uh, the story as it unfolds, I think there's a lot of relevance that people can still grab from this. I am kind of surprised that this has not been tried to be remade, to be honest, for like a, a new actress in Agreed. their early 20s or 30s to be like, here, here's big. a way to do right? it. And what's that? It's too big. Who would want to take this project on? I don't know. I don't know. Like uh, as an actress. Kristen Stewart. I mean, Kristen Stewart. Maybe uh, you laugh, but she's probably going to win an Oscar this year, Dave. So, eh, eh. well, as the person who saw Spencer last yeah. night, I hope okay. not. Well, I haven't yet to see it. So, <laughs> she was in a vampire movie with the new Batman. Who cares? <laughs> did you watch yeah, Charlie's Angels? Right. It was fucking horrible. No, I did not. Yeah, no, that was some terrible. That on that we can agree. Oh God. 
That is what Jennifer, Dave, and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave at VSTheMachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page at letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month, something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. And if you want to yell at Dave, you can also go to our YouTube channel because uh, that seems to be the thing that happens a lot on those YouTube videos. I know. Bunch of assholes. We're going to get to the rating of this movie. (laughs) Um, I always feel so bad when we have guests on here, Jim, because your rating really doesn't matter. Sounds like you enjoy it, frankly. Yeah, he feels bad, but is making no movement to <laughs> no, change no. it. I mean, the, it's the machine. Yeah. The machine tells us what we have to have we, to do. We hang up, and he just sits there like, <laughs> got another one. <laughs> Jen, if you were to give a rating out of five for this movie, what do you think you would give it? Four and a half. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow, okay. that's pretty high. Hmm. Dave, what would you give this movie? I was going to go much lower, actually. I oh. I mean, Jane Fonda's a five, but I think that um, those little nuances were too irritating for me. So like a three and a half, actually. Mm. Maybe even a four, but three and a half I'm going to go because I know Kyle's going to blow his top on this thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm also distracted because after Jen brought it up, I am now rewatching the Clute disco scene to see if I could uh, Fine, spot yeah. Sly's face while she's making out all these people. I'm sure it's going to be there. I am aligned with jen this this week i am giving it a 4.5 as well i do i agree there are those little things that don't 100 add up here for me which is why it's not a perfect five but i really enjoyed this movie like the more it went on i was like i'm really enjoying this i'm really liking this perhaps it's because we've also watched next week's movie already and that was like <laughs> bottom of the barrel so there was like this huge gulf between those two but uh oh, man i like that that is going to average out to a four here for us which does mean that it's going to be in our top 10 but it does tie with two other movies which is duel and duck you sucker Dave, would you say that it's above or below in the middle of those two movies? Yeah, above. I mean, this is, Mm -hmm. again, this should be much higher in my esteem. It just, I can't get over Donald Sutherland. I can't get over the name and I can't get over some of the weird editing things that broke my concentration watching this thing. So uh, yeah, this is Mm -hmm. a a great movie. Anybody who's listened to this, if you subscribe to Criterion, immediately go go watch this thing. It's worth it. Well, that's cool. So entering our list then at the new number four position is Clute. All right. Well, I guess we're going to we're going to find out for the first time what we're going to oh, watch the next suspense week. suspense is killing me. Oh, this is so Let ridiculous. Let me push the button here. <laughs> yes, we are going to be watching Pretty Maids all in a row. We what? have no idea what, Surprise! what we're going to talk about next week, Dave. I mean, never heard of it. Never heard of it. Um, I will say this, but I know this is directed by the husband of Jane Fonda, who she was divorcing in 1971. Oh, yeah. She was uh, yeah. with Donald Sutherland during the filming of this as well. So. Is that true? Yes. Yes. No, did not know that. What is Should've it about that people up. that are... Spoiler alert. That so many people who are like with each other, like having sex or married, have no on-screen chemistry with each other. What is it, what is it about that? Okay. Well, with Woody I don't know, Allen... When you ask every... When you last every single Ben Affleck movie I've ever had to endure. <laughs> True enough. Um, oh, uh, ben, how do you even secretly tape someone in analog? 
I mean, there are a lot of moving parts. You tape it right? to your chest someone, and you just go right up to them and like, hey, Dave, what's going on? <laughs> it's like and a, then don't move. Don't so move, it don't move. muffles your shirt. I'm so turned on right now.